Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Before we jump into today's content, I have something I want to share with you. In a recent 2019 CEO benchmark study conducted by the Predictive Index, CEOs disclosed that four out of five top challenges they face relate to talent optimization. To win consistently, you need confidence. Confidence that you've got the right people in the right roles, that they're deployed around the right projects, and that those projects are mapped to the right organizational objectives. And you need more than gut level confidence. You need data to back that up. But the truth is, the rapid pace of change is exhausting. People and systems are being pushed to the edge, and diversity, equality, and inclusion issues remain unresolved. In this age of empathy, we can do better. That's why I'm super excited about a new talent optimization platform that Ben Strout, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions and a certified partner with the Predictive Index, is ready to show you. This technology-enabled, data-driven platform will give you an unfair advantage so you can win and succeed more. Visit peoplegetresults.com and use the code RAINMAKER to schedule your free personalized assessment and demo today. That's peoplegetresults.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER today. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, and I am thrilled today to be sitting down with Lisa Greer. In fact, I've been looking forward to this conversation for, it's got to have been five or six months now. Lisa is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Philanthropy Revolution. She's an entrepreneur, an investor, and a philanthropist who's been managing her family's giving for the last decade. Lisa has served on dozens of different boards and commissions, including the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission, the International Board of the New Israel Fund, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Prevention Foundation. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hey, I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. Before we jump into the questions for the day, take a few minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about what's not in your bio. Tell us more about who you are, more about your background. So, uh, and, and first of all, um, thank you for Looking forward to this for several months. I have been as well ever since we, um, I guess it's been, what, about a year, close to a year since we met on Twitter. So it's very, um, very exciting to have that happen. So uh, the part that's not really in my bio is that I didn't grow up as a philanthropist. I became really an overnight philanthropist. Actually, like, that's exactly what I became. I had given a little bit of money here and there. I would be had organizations in my 20s that said, if you want to be part of this volunteer organization, you need to give whatever it is. I would give what I could. I would volunteer much more than I would give in terms of money just because that was my financial state. So I was always sort of a paycheck to paycheck kind of person. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago uh, where my husband and I found ourselves um, and, and my husband also grew up, you know, we were sort of average middle class. And again, we gave what we could give, but, but if somebody we wanted to be on a board, usually they would say, oh, no, those are for the rich people, that kind of thing. So, and then all of a sudden, one night, in one period of time, we found out that uh, my, I, I was selling my company and my husband's company went public, and we found ourselves with uh, a whole lot of money, and in, a diff, in sort of that 1% place, but not the pejorative way. And the first question we had for each other was, well, we're now philanthropists. It was just obvious. If you have that money, then you have an obligation to be a philanthropist, and it's still is very strange to me that everybody who has money doesn't think that way, but I, I found out after a while that's not the case. And then we decided, well, how do you do that? And uh, how do you go about giving money? And how do you decide where to give money? And how do you know if you can trust people? And, and then um, all of those kinds of things. And so we had to learn it from scratch. And so that's a really, really important part of me and, and our story and why I wrote this book, because it's sort of more of 
the adventures, the book starts off with kind of the adventures of Lisa and Josh all of a sudden having money. So, um, and it goes from there. Yeah, you know, the, the I've just so enjoyed reading the book. And what I love about it is it's it's really the first book that's written from the perspective of the philanthropist. I mean, there are so many books in our sector that are, you know, 25 tips for this, 37 you know, reasons for that, that are written from the perspective of the fundraiser or the marketer or the executive director. But there's been kind of a deafening silence from the side of the philanthropist. I think this is a huge opportunity for nonprofit organizations to really start to understand how a donor like yourself thinks, makes decisions, experiences them. I mean, it's, it's just packed with so much information around that. So I, I'm really excited to dig into this. Before we do that, I do want to note, because I forgot to mention it in, in the intro, that you're also the author of the Philanthropy 451 blog. Yes. And, and so for all of our listeners, if you're not subscribed to that, go out, go out and subscribe to that. Lisa's got some great content that comes out pretty regularly on that as well. Let's jump in. So early in the book, you talk about, you know, two giving experiences. And, and I think these were, uh, if I recall the story correctly, these are the two first gifts that you plan to make after you and Josh sold your company and, and his company went public. And they were to your synagogue and, and to Cedar sinai Could you briefly talk about that experience and what you learned in the process? So what we learned is that we were an alien country. We, 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 we learned, we both come from business and uh, people said we seem like aliens. And, and I have to say that the organizations seemed alien to us. We, um, we had both worked at Universal Studios at, at, in different departments, but we've been in business environments our whole lives. And uh, we just didn't understand why, when we went to both of them unsolicited, there was no ask, no one knew who we were. And we made these decisions a few weeks before the company went public. We, uh, we, we connected with them and we said, hi, we're here to give you money. And we were told, who the hell are you basically? Uh, they didn't really want to accept our money, which was just blew us away. It was incredible. I'd never experienced anything like that. And they were two completely different organizations. And because they, the, the regular routine wasn't followed, that you identify the person and you do the ask and all the things that all the philanthropy books say, or all the fundraising books say, um, the people we were giving the money to like didn't know how to handle us. And it was a very, it, it just couldn't have been more strange. Um, back to what you were talking about before, about the first, the being, this being the first book from a donor perspective, it, it, it would be the idea of, you know, everyone knows what secret shoppers are and everybody talks to, we've all been queried before in a shopping mall about what do you think of the shopping experience or about this particular brand or this particular cookie or this particular whatever. But imagine if all of the books about how to sell merchandise to people didn't have that other side and they didn't actually ever query the buyers. You would think that was ludicrous, but that is what's happening in philanthropy and fundraising. And I just don't understand it. The only part that I understand a little bit now is that donors a lot of donors don't like to talk about this because a lot of donors feel like, well, there's, there's a number of reasons, but I think one is, is well, you know, we're wealthy people and we shouldn't complain. So uh, we're not going to tell anybody. And, but also I don't think anybody really asks. And um, so I decided to be the person who would uh, make sure that other people asked. We have about 40 interviews with about 40 different people in the book. And uh, that I would also tell my experiences because I was so shocked by it and then annoyed by it and then aggravated by by the reaction that I was getting from the fundraisers uh, that I thought I, I thought well I can just be angry all the time or be annoyed or I can actually try to make change and so I decided to write the uh, the blog and and write the book so that we could actually make change and and wake up people and say you know hello we're here you need to talk to us yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you went there because one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, as I read through the examples that you shared, I sat there thinking to myself like, well, at what point do you just say, 
nuts to this. Like, this is such a painful process. I'm just going to keep my money. You know, clearly they don't want it enough to, to craft an experience that works for me. What is it about you and who you are and, and how you think that kept you from doing that? Right. Yeah. And that I, I still ask myself that. I mean, why okay. did you go seven months? So I still ask myself that often. Um, but, but I just wanted, I, I, we had, we'd identified the hospital. We, we identified the program we wanted to be involved with. We had a personal reason to do it. And it just felt like the people we were talking to were just the wrong people, but we didn't know who their bosses were, who to ask for. We didn't even know that a development person meant somebody asking for money. I mean, we were brand new to this stuff. So I think for me, um, probably the easy answer is I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. I just, uh, I, I guess I just like to kind of, but well, there's two things. One is I, I, once I start something, I want to finish it. I think that's just in my nature. And I couldn't finish them because I couldn't get them to respond to me. And uh, the other thing, though, is that uh, I did notice it as an opportunity. My husband and I are serial entrepreneurs. We look for opportunities. And when an opportunity comes your way, this was sort of an opportunity to make something better. And I think I wanted to follow it through to see what the heck is this thing and why do they do it that way? So I think a lot of it was curiosity. And then it was also just determination. And then it was just saying, hey, I'm on the path. I want to be able to, I, I want to be able to give to these people and, and I'm going to, and, and we're going to make it happen. So I just, I just didn't want to give up. I'm not, I'm not that person. And, um, but having said that, I still do periodically think, wow, that was, yeah. <laughs> so to go a little deeper on this, this first question uh, around those two experiences, talk a little bit about the power dynamic that you experienced, uh, particularly with the gift that you tried to give to your synagogue. Can right. You give us a little in context around that. Well, it was an unfortunate um, situation, and uh, it was it was the first time I I, I, I tried to believe. Um, having been at the studios as an executive, I didn't really feel a lot of gender bias. I'm sure there was some, but I didn't feel a lot. But but when we went to go give the gift, and we were told, and spoiler alert, this is in the first chapter. Uh, but I, I said we're going to finish this capital campaign. We're going to give you this million dollar gift. And the answer was a I don't know what to say. And then when I said, well, just you could say thank you. Then the next piece was, let me talk to your husband. And um, that was really, really, really shocking to me. I, I, I just, I, I did it. And my husband thought it was as strange as I did. But, but that was very weird. And I, I had always, you know, I came from being an executive in the studios. I'd had my own businesses. And I felt like it was sort of one of those stories I hear about when women go to buy cars. And, and they say, well, you can't possibly be here. Why don't you get your husband over and he can help you decide, you know, how you're, which car you should have. And I've heard those stories. It never really happened to me, but I found it astonishing. So yeah, it was, it was very weird. Uh, I also found that people treat donors uh, very differently than I was aware. And that's a really big piece of the book and a piece of what I, I help people with is realizing that donors are human beings. We, we didn't, just because I didn't grow up with money doesn't mean that I'm not a real donor, but it also doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not so different than any other donor. I mean, we have, there's all different types of people and there's all different types of donors. And you can't assume that donor equals this box and that particular person who's going to be a certain way. But when you, when you read in the book, The Lobster Story, which was, um, we were on a yacht and, and, and there was a, I'm just doing it very quickly there. And we're on a, we're on a trip and we're told that we have to, they came to us and they said, we're very, very sorry. Um, this is where we have to have dinner somewhere else tonight. Uh, we're going to take you to a local restaurant. We can't have dinner on the boat. And I said, oh, okay, we were docked somewhere. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, but is everything okay? And they said, no, actually the chef dropped a boiling pot of, of hot water while he was boiling lobsters on his foot and he's got third degree burns and we have to take him to the hospital. And I said, like I would think any normal person would, oh my gosh, is he okay? We have to, you know, can we do something to help, whatever? 
And they said, oh, we're just so sorry that you can't have dinner on the boat tonight. And I thought, what? So I said to them, who have you been working with that you would respond that way? Like, that's just strange. <laughs> so it was like this new world. And, and thankfully, I hope we, we will never act like those people. But, but it was, there was this certain, certain um, uh, sycophantic uh, I, idea uh, with, with people who have money that we just weren't accustomed to. Well, I mean, that brings up something that I think underlies so much of the challenge of getting uh, you know, nonprofit organizations and, and their staff into alignment with philanthropists. And it's, it's these, you know, the, the disconnect that people have, uh, particularly if they don't come from money and, you know, maybe they've had negative financial experiences in their life and it makes it hard to even engage in a conversation with someone who does have money, right? There's, there's this, you know, maybe it's self-imposed, maybe it's, you know, institutional, but this disconnect and, and this belief that, well, they must be so dramatically different from me because they have more resources than I do. I just think that's not logical, but it is exactly what I think most people think. Agreed. Yeah, no, I, I 100% it's not logical at all, but I, it's, it's such a deeply held belief, I think, that, that many, particularly when you think about the kind of person that typically staff is a staff member at a nonprofit organization, right? They're, in most cases, they don't make a lot of money. In most cases, they don't come from familial wealth. They may not have ever had any kind of formal training around financial management or finance or anything like that. And so I think, you know, it becomes the story they tell themselves that, you know, gets them worked up and keeps them from being able to engage in a way. Or maybe they had an experience with a donor once who was that kind of just totally inappropriate donor. And that then becomes the narrative through, through which they view every donor relationship, you know? Right. And, and that, you know, just think about you in regular life. If you had a bad experience at, you know, Nordstrom, which you never go to Nordstrom again because of one bad salesperson, of course you would go back. But uh, there's always going to be bad actors in any group. But to assume that the donors, like you said, are, are you know, maybe it, maybe it feels more intense because it's about money. But to, to decide that all donors, all donors are anyway, they're either all horrible or all nice or all whatever. Right. We're, it's, it's a whole variety of people. And, and, and I think that is really the basis of, of how uh, fundraisers can do better with donors is realizing that there's just as many types of donors as there are types of fundraisers. For sure. So I want to talk about one more aspect of the, the gift that you made to Cedars because it, it struck me as a unique perspective. You, you mentioned in the book that you and Josh were really excited about that gift because it allowed the doctor to take risks and to test new things and try new things. Yes. And, and the nonprofit sector in general, obviously there are some that break the mold, but, but in general, it is a highly risk averse group of organizations and, and people. So talk a little bit about your perspective on risk. And I think it's, you know, you already mentioned it, you're a serial entrepreneurs, so it probably is baked into your DNA, but yeah. how do you find that to be different than what you experience with most of the nonprofits that you engage with? How, how I find uh, risk to be different way that nonprofits do it versus your us. perspective on risk versus yeah. the perspective of the average nonprofit that you talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the average nonprofits, I, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind right away is we wanted to help in the Cedar situation. My husband actually got a certification so that he could go and work with cellular you know, samples of, of, of tissue to try and uh, help them to then create a technology to sort. Wait, so he could personally do that? Personally, so he actually, that's how much, so I know, talk about different, right? I mean, we, we really said, we really want to get our hands on this. And he actually went through a certification so that he could go into the lab and he could actually do that. 
So he didn't want to do it as a full-time thing, but he wanted to help them to do it better and faster. And if he could figure out some technology that could help them do it better and faster, that was great. They had talked to me about, could I get the Jewish community, because they were doing something on Crohn's disease, and, and could I get their control group? So could I get people who didn't have Crohn's disease, but get X number of people very quickly? And I said, yes, that I can do. I've got enough connections here, and I can figure out a way to do that. We can help you with the survey form and all of that. So most organizations would have just shut me down with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cedars, I think, is a very innovative organization, and, and they didn't. And, or maybe they were just so shocked that they said, okay, anyway. But, um, but, but I've had plenty of organizations where I've said, you know, we have this background, we'd like to help you with whatever, or, uh, or you know, we want to volunteer. Most, I, I, I'd say the most common is we want to volunteer and give you money. And, and most nonprofits, their head explodes. They can't deal with that concept. And I just, I don't understand that. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I was talking to another gentleman who is himself a successful philanthropist. He's an entrepreneur, second generation owner of a business and grew it from like $2 million to $42 million in the Midwest. And he shared a similar story. He said, I, I sat down with, with a donor or with a, a development officer and a CEO, and they asked me for, I think it was like $1,000. And he said, no, 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 no. I want to like pay for the program. And I want to, I want to help you design it, you know, and they, they left that meeting within, you know, no next steps. And it's been a year and he's not heard back from them. I think it is this scenario where it's such a shock to the system for these organizations that are used to having to claw and fight for every dollar that someone will come in and say, no, 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 I can write this check for you. And I want to be heavily involved. And I think that latter piece also scares a lot of organizations because they might be thinking, you know, we have our process, we have our system, this is how we do it. And the idea of letting someone in, particularly someone who can control the purse strings, is a scary thing for them, right? It's, it's much different than the way that they're used to operating. Well, that's right. And, and, and I, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think, you, I don't think a, a nonprofit should let everybody come in who wants to do something. I mean, you know, if Jeffrey Epstein wanted to have parties and it, with his money, obviously that would have been sure. a bad idea. But <laughs> I think you, you're just as selective as you would be with hiring anybody. Uh, but if the person's in front of you and they're contributing money, it doesn't make it bad money. It actually makes it more valuable money because they're putting their money where their mouth is. And, and so they're, they're truly committed to it. But I think the, the, the most important piece or learning from that is that you need to, uh, fundraisers need to actually not only treat the, the person on the other side of the table as a human, but they also need to understand what their story is. And if in that scenario that you just described, the person on the other end of the table actually asked this uh, this this gentleman what you know what was his story and what had happened. They would have learned very quickly, probably in five or ten minutes, that this was not a thousand dollar donor. This was somebody who could do something more. But they didn't. That it, it wasn't taught to them that way, and that wasn't what their normal process was. And so they just ended up with nothing. And and when you look today and see how many people are, uh, you know, all the companies have gone public in the last gosh, 10, 10, 20 years, and all of the people, even middle management, even lower, lower level people who've made huge amounts of money and are not giving it away. And you kind of look at them and you say, well, those are all opportunities. We need to get those people. But if you're not going to talk to them and learn their story and talk to them like a human, they are going to take their millions of dollars and they're going to leave it to their cat or they're going to put it in a donor advice um, because they're just, they're just not going to deal with it because and most people are not going to sit for six or seven months and say, please take my money. So they're going to have one experience with somebody. And if that experience isn't, the person is talking to them like they're somebody who they're not, or that they're an automaton, or that they're, they're just somebody completely different, or that they have an attitude and they don't, then 
that person is going to say, this is a really crappy experience. I don't want to do this anymore. And they won't talk to any other development people. Yeah, for sure. To, to go back just a little bit on the whole risk thing, do you think that nonprofit organizations should specifically be raising risk capital? Okay, so give me an example. Say an organization, well, here's a good example. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, right? They're all yeah. about cancer research. And, and so for them, you know, there are some proven treatments that they're investing in, right? They've been tested over 20, 30 years, whatever it is, but they still need additional capital to scale those, those uh, treatments. Should they also be saying like, hey, we want to raise $10 million to fund sort of bleeding edge treatment protocols that might be, you know, the rest of the, the physician community might look at us and say, this is insane, but it also might work, right? Or uh, maybe a, a feeding organization says, hey, should we invest in, you know, should we raise this, this capital that we're only going to use to put at risk to try to find the next two or three things that are going to dramatically improve our ability to deliver meals to, to people in need, things like that. Should we raise capital or raise revenue that we expect not to ever put to core mission, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, you know what? It depends, I guess. If your core mission is to change the world, then you have to be innovative. I, I, I just think it depends on what your core mission is. If your core mission is status quo, we want to make sure that these thousand people continue to get food, uh, then you could say, okay, fine, we're just going to keep doing just that and nothing outside of that box. Uh, but I think that it's it's more often than not, an, uh, an organization, organization should be innovative and they should certainly not be afraid to discuss it. And they absolutely shouldn't be afraid to discuss it with donors because a lot of the donors have taken risk. I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm guessing half of your donors, of anybody's donors, have, have had been involved in risk at some point, maybe 75%. So they understand risk. And, and so I think it's like any, um, on one hand, I think it's like a portfolio. I don't think you put everything on the high risk category, I think it's like a financial portfolio. So you have your your tried and true, and you have your easy performing, and you have your long range, and then you have the the stretch kinds of things, and the other types of asset classes that are the alternative classes that that are are going to be. That you, you're betting that yeah, you know, we got to put something in that too. And I almost think that it's it's an obligation to always have some piece of your pie in something that's going to affect major change. Um, so, so in the in the example of the thousand people and in the food situation, is there another thing that you could do and maybe partner with ten other organizations like yours and do something together? Which, uh oh, don't don't do that. But, <laughs> but 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 basically, you know, get together and do something and create some sort of new system with shared services or something like that that's going to actually create a better food delivery system to get it to more people better, faster, cheaper. That would be shocking to a lot of. Uh, fundraisers and a lot of lot of nonprofits, but I think that it's almost a, an organization's obligation to start thinking that way. I, I love that you called it an obligation. I think it's it's so um, on point because I think for for many the idea of like, well, we're we're going to do incrementally better next year. That's the goal, right? Can we can we take what we did this year and do five percent better? Can we? If we're really risky, we're going to do ten percent better. But if if we sat down and said let's solve this problem in the next decade or let's solve it in the next two decades, whatever, you know, might look yeah. like that from where I sit will be so much more motivating to donors and to the, you know, to the foundation community, kind of everybody. Right. Um, and really put a stake in the ground that, you know, we're about making meaningful change. I just don't feel like I hear that a lot in, in the sector these days. 
No, and, and, and in fact, one of the favorite, my favorite things to hear from people is we want to, uh, our goal, uh, we have, this is our mission, but our overall goal is to put ourselves out of business because we want to find that cure or we want to find that solution. I think everybody should be that way. If we can find a solution, that's great. And, and the only reason I would think somebody wouldn't say that is because they're more concerned about keeping their job and keeping the status quo and they're afraid of change. And so they don't actually reach for something that's going to create you know, completely disruptive change. I mean, disruptive has a bad connotation to some people, right? Sure. But, but you need to do that. And I don't think donors are going to hang in there for the 5% incremental each year, let's do the same thing, because the rest of the world's just going to pass them by. And, and honestly, the only reason I can think that somebody wouldn't try to do something that would, like I said, put themselves out of business because they found the cure or the answer, the only reason would be to, because they, they want to keep their job and keep everything the way it is, and um, those people aren't doing anybody any favors. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. So let's go in a little bit different direction here. You know, a number of the examples that you share in the book, uh, what I found interesting is it, it seemed like you had done a lot more research about the organizations that you were wanting to support than they had invested time to get to know and research you. And I'm curious to know if you have a perspective on why that is. And I'm also curious to know if you have a perspective on what that might say about the talent development in this sector. Yeah, well, the talent development is a big, giant problem. And I think that my, my goal in the, in the book and uh, my, my advising people and, and everything that I do is to try and have this taught differently. So I, I don't only want people to just do it differently. I don't think the mechanism is just I do everything differently. But I think from the very beginning when it's taught to people, at every level of people learning about how to do fundraising and how to work in a nonprofit, they should be taught this in a different way. They should be taught that donors are human beings. They should be taught that you want to, that everybody has their own story and you want to understand their story. And that's going to help you if you listen and be a good listener, then that's going to help you to understand how to interact with them and who they are. The problem is, is that, is that until recently, there were quite a few uh, way more openings for development people than there were development people in the, you know, available, like people who, who had an education or who had some experience. So I see dozens of ads every single day. I'm sure you do too, maybe even in the hundreds of ads. It's slowing down a little bit because of the time and what with all the craziness that we're in the middle of right now. But, but you, so, so development people can just kind of go from place to place and they don't really have to have this that sort of you know, inner passion about whatever it is that they're doing. They just want to go and maybe they want to get a paycheck and show that they can raise some money. And, and my proof of that is that the average uh, fundraiser, as you know, stays in their position about 18 months. And I think a recent survey said that something like 47% of them or some crazy number uh, actually wanted to leave the industry altogether in the next yep. year. So if you have people who are that unhappy, then how do I expect them to actually do real research on me and really care about doing things differently in a way that's going to be better and, and also how to think long-term. If they stay 18 months or they stay two years or they're just looking for the next job, I don't know that they're going to be really interested in, in, some, in, in, in cultivating, everyone loves the world, cult, cultivating, uh, cultivating a donor that really is going to take a long time, but that's going to grow into a lot of money. But that's, those are only certain people. There's plenty of people in the industry who are passionate about their mission and about the company, and, and they live and breathe that. And, uh, and th those are the best people, but it's just hard to find enough of them that are trained and interested in being in this, uh, in this sector as a, as a career. Do you think that, that part of the, the reason for this problem is that there is like, un unlike other professions, you know, if you, if you go and get a securities license to become a broker, right, there, there's an actual defined curriculum that you have to go through, right? Yeah. And, and you have to sit for those exams and they're, they're very rigorous. Um, and it's much different 
you know, the, the only certification or you know, there might be a couple, but CFRE is, is the one in our industry. I took that exam, I think it was back in 2008. Uh, and I, if I'm being honest, it was not a difficult exam to take. I did not study for it. And I've renewed since then and have not had to study for anything. But there's no defined curriculum that, that we as fundraisers say, this is what we all agree are the core components. I mean, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, let's see. We, there's no defined curriculum. There's no continuing education required. And there's no uh, really ingenuity or innovation to the way it's taught. There hasn't been anything different in the last several decades. It's all been taught the exact same way. It goes step to step to step. And then, so you have that on one side. And on the other side, you have about $150 billion sitting in donor advised funds. It's growing faster all the time. I don't know why more people don't make a connection between those two things, but people don't, there's lots and lots and lots of money out there that isn't being addressed because fundraisers, for a whole lot of reasons, don't know how, don't want to, don't want to take the time, are afraid, all of those different reasons. So I think that the industry, uh, back to obligation, really, if everybody got together and said, look, let's figure out how can we actually not be going to the same 10 donors and just ask them for a little bit more, which is sort of the standard with a lot of institutions and large uh, and a lot of nonprofits, how can we really open this up to lots of other people and, and be getting a piece, it really, really increase the size of the pie. Um, and I think some people kind of prefer to just moan and groan about, oh, it's all so hard, you know, we're just gonna, couldn't get that extra 5% from that guy. But there is a whole world out there that is being ignored. And I'm just one of the people who was in it. And, and but it's, it's, not, it's not 100, it's not 1,000, it's lots and lots and lots of people. And I, um, I, you know, the proof of the pudding is when people get bequests. Over and over again, I hear from organizations that got bequests, and I always ask, tell me about the person. And more often than not, it's somebody that the organization didn't really know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's compute that, right? Right? If you, those people are there and they left a lot of money and you didn't really know them, then maybe there's other people you don't really know who also have a lot of money that you're not interacting with. So maybe we should do that. And, and I don't know that I want to rely on everybody to come to those conclusions themselves or have to go through it for 10 years like me uh, and learn it. I think that there should be a curriculum put together. And I think that there should be a, a, a way of teaching this that is different and people shouldn't be afraid of it. And now is the time to change. We have major changes going on in the world. And now is the time to say, you know what, let's also change. Let's see what can we do better and differently. And even if that different isn't incremental different, it's wholesale different, let's do it. And I think that should happen with uh, the way that uh, uh, philanthropy fundraising is taught as well. And everybody will benefit. Agreed. So to stay on this topic for just a, a minute more, what do you see as the role of the board in an organization in this conversation? Well, that is an interesting question because it's different uh, all over the place. I have been on a variety of boards, as you said earlier. Uh, one of them that was the most striking, I, I couldn't understand the board meetings were going in a very strange way. And they seemed to focus on things where, where things that I thought should take a lot of time weren't and vice versa. And I, I couldn't understand it. And so I started asking people, like, why does everybody, why are you on this board? And not in a mean way, just, you know, hey, we have, what got you to join this board? And I found out that most of the board members wanted to be there because they wanted to meet friends. That's mm -hmm. what they actually said. And I, I kind of was, I was really struck by that. I thought, wow, that's a whole lot of time and energy and also responsibility. Like the organization and the donors thought that the board was going to be the steward of the money and was going to be making sure that administratively the, the organization was, was working well and was moving forward and making sure we don't get sued and all of those good things. But really the board members weren't there for any of that. And, and that really shocked me. Uh, I think a lot of boards are, uh, there, there's as many different boards as there are different people, uh, different types of boards. And 
I think though that the idea that that the boards were a lot of them started when the organization is young and they started because of the founders and then they, the founders brought in their friends and then you get into this whole thing about should they give money or should they not give money? I think a board, I, I think we should learn a lot from, from the for-profit world. Boards have real responsibility. And yes, in the for-profit world, some of them are more successful than others and some of them mine the store better than others. But really a board is there to mine the store and also to look for, be strategic and look forward and, and, and pursue innovation and see where this organization is going and keep them on track. And also you know, deal with little things, whatever, if you have to do that. But really it's about that strategic, big vision, uh, you know, how do we, where do we want to go and how are we going to get there in a the big picture sort of way? And then how are we going to make sure to have the right staff and pay them well so that they can help us to get there? And uh, I'm surprised that more boards aren't like that. As am I, yes. <laughs> um, okay, so let, you mentioned at least once in the book that, that you, you know, you're sort of wired as a fixer, right? And you want, and, and you've already said on this conversation today that you want to be involved in more than just giving money. And that, you know, in, in my experience, that's indicative of a couple of things. It's indicative of younger donors. It's indicative of people who are entrepreneurs. We often see that, you know, especially when you have younger entrepreneurs, they definitely want to be involved in a, in a much deeper way. I'm curious to know if you have any examples where the organization has kind of pleasantly surprised you in that respect and really involved you in a way that was meaningful to you. Yeah, I've got a couple of examples, but um, I, I guess one of my, my favorites is um, the New Israel Fund that I'm on uh, right now. Uh, we decided to create our own donor advice fund program. Uh, I had some bad uh, experiences with the donor advice fund that I was part of, and I really wanted to create a very egalitarian, and in this case, progressive donor advice fund uh, program. And from nowhere, like, like, so it would just basically, we would just create it. So, uh, and, and, you know, the Fidelities and the Schwabs of the world and all of those have been around forever. The, the community foundations have been around forever. I, I rarely hear of somebody starting a program like that. So we, we talked about the idea of doing it and they actually said, okay, Lisa, here's a staff person who was a COO, is a COO, CFO of the organization who had had experience in a, in a previous position at a previous company, uh, a previous nonprofit running a donor advised fund program. And, and they said, let's be partners and let's just do this. And we actually did it as, as partners and it was phenomenal. So awesome. I, um, but, but it was, you know, did that, were there conversations behind the scenes of, Oh, well, we don't want to, you know, mix the, the donor and the whatever. And what if, what if the, one of the big concerns I hear from organizations is we don't want the donor to see behind the curtain. We're afraid if they, they won't like hearing that we're, you know, warts and all. And so they won't give to us anymore. And I think that's, crazy making. I think that the, seeing behind the curtain and seeing the warts and all just makes everything feel more authentic. So uh, in this case, it worked really, really well. And I, and I thought it was great. And I'm grateful that they, um, they took that kind of unusual step. So hopefully more people will do that. That's great. That's great. One of the things I wonder, ballpark for me, how many, how many times somebody has asked you for money? Oh my goodness. 500. Okay. Okay. So that's a good, that's a good large number. And I suspect that in I'm going to guess that in 90% of them, the ask was probably, you could have just changed the name of the organization and it was probably something pretty similar, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been stewing on is I, I wonder, my, I have a hypothesis that if, if fundraisers approached the solicitation process more in line, particularly with people like yourself, who've been an entrepreneur, who've grown a business, who've probably gone out and solicited capital, yourself, if, if the ask were structured more along the lines of an investment pitch, 
than a charitable gift ask, I feel like there would be a greater level of success because there'd be almost immediately a, a more camaraderie and alignment between the organization and the donor. Am I crazy on that? No, you're absolutely right. But then we have to assume that the person who's asking, the development officer, also understands a little bit about business. Uh, so if they don't, then it's not going to work. But if they do, and, and hopefully they would, or hopefully they bring someone from the board who understands that, I think absolutely um, basic business tenets should become part of, uh, part of fundraising. And I think if, if it's going to be taught differently, uh, just as every lawyer takes a class in business and every business school student takes a class in business law and every doctor takes a class in ethics, I think every fundraiser should take a class in business, just business tenets, basic business stuff. Budgeting. I, I can't tell you how many board members I've met who they, well, let's look around a table at if we just picked arbitrarily 10 different board meetings and you're putting a budget in front of them, how many people at the table are actually reading it? I would say not a whole lot, and it would be kind of a fun party game to, to figure that out, but some of them are kind of sleeping, some of them are doodling, but, but actually understanding what they're looking at, I find that most people just don't. I mean, how many times when you say, are we approving the minutes from the last meeting, do people actually read them? So a lot of that stuff doesn't happen, but, um, and, and that can happen in business meetings too, but you, at least in business, you, you know how to do it. And I don't think that the people sitting around the table at the board meetings do often, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the, certainly the development person, when I say to somebody, and they're saying we're having a hard time raising money, and I say, okay, give me your elevator pitch, and they say, what? That's a problem. Or when I say, uh, why are you giving me all of this paper? Or, you know, it, 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 why wouldn't you just send it to me digitally, which is how everybody does business. Why is it that the fundraisers are giving big, giant packages of paper and nobody else is these days? I don't understand that. So it's, it's a lot of that basic um, stuff I think has to happen. And I, I have heard of some organizations uh, calling their gifts, uh, to donations, calling them investments, starting to actually use that word. And I don't know if it always is or isn't. It's, it might be semantics, but I think it should be thought of that way, that this is an investment in us, uh, uh, investment in our mission, investment in our uh, continued uh, success at doing what we do. And, and that, is, that should be all true as opposed to, Gosh, golly, can you give me some money? Right, for sure, for sure. So, you know, as as you've talked this afternoon and and with you know the the book and the content in there, and you you've already hit on a couple of them, like improving the the training and education and being more business like. But it's it's pretty clear to me that there's a decent amount of, of ground to be covered to to bring nonprofit organizations and particularly fundraisers into better alignment with the philanthropists that they're you know, seeking to solicit gifts from. Beyond training and business acumen, what are some other things that nonprofits should be thinking about? Like how, how do they close this gap and, and how do they close this gap quicker than not? Well, I, I think, um, okay, so my number one suggestion that I tell almost everybody these days is uh, talk to the donor as if you were talking to a friend or as somebody was talking to you. So it is, it is, I can't tell you the amount of times that people have said to me, well, this is our pitch for the donor. And I say, well, would you give money if somebody said that to you? And they, and they look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, but really, I mean, how would you respond to that? Uh, I, I, we've been talking a lot lately about subject lines and emails because there's like tons and tons of emails that come all day long. And which ones are you going to open? So what I say to people is look on your computer, turn on your computer in the morning, look at all your emails, and you're going to delete a whole bunch. Everybody does that. And so which ones are gonna get your attention? Which ones are you gonna open? And so whatever that is, you gotta pretend that yours was in there and you've actually got somebody to open it. 
I think the other piece is realizing that there is a much bigger, big opportunities and a much bigger pie out there. And we need to start understanding that, um, it, you know, a, a, anybody who, there's always the story, but I remember I was working in the art business years ago and, and, uh, and these people came in and they, they looked like kind of country bumpkins and they ended up buying, they were like the biggest sale of the year. <laughs> and, um, and we just started talking and I was like, that was very interesting. And, and, you know, lesson learned, a lot of us have had those experiences, you know, don't look at the way somebody is dressed and then make some sort of a decision about them both ways, right? I mean, if someone's sure. dressed really well, you might assume they have a lot of money and all of a sudden they're saying, I'm going to give you money. You spend a bunch of time with them and find out there's not a there there and you just wasted your time. But the convert, the, the opposite also, also applies. And so I think realizing that everybody out there is an op is an opportunity. And one of the things that I find really shocking is that people put volunteers, as I said earlier, volunteers in a separate box than donors. Mm -hmm. And so, but when you look at your volunteers, volunteers are, I forgot what the amount was. I want to say it's 87%, 90% of volunteers give to their organization, but they also give long-term. They give for a, a very, very long time. Usually they're attached. That's their thing. And that's what they give to. And guess what? Those bequests, a lot of them are coming from those people. They're not coming from the regular people that you've talked to. They're like, gee, I just got this $100,000 bequest. Who is this person? And more often than not, you find out that either somebody somewhere in the organization was nice to them and took them to tea periodically, or you find, and or you find out that they've been volunteering and nobody really ever talked to them. And mm -hmm. so I think the answer is, a short answer on that is, is talk to people all around you. And anybody who seems to have a passion for your cause might be an opportunity for, uh, to become a donor. And if they're not an opportunity to become a six-figure, seven-figure, eight-figure donor right now, that's okay. You don't know what they're going to become tomorrow. But if you don't get to know them, you miss the opportunity. For sure. You know, it's, it's so funny about the, the volunteer piece. One of the things that's always shocking to me is just how many organizations say something like, well, our, our volunteers actually sit in a different system than our donors, or they're in an Excel file and they're not in our CRM system, you know, and it's frustrating, but I think, you know, the, the best example I have of this, I was sitting in a room with a major gift staff at an organization and they were looking at some recent gifts and they said, oh, we, we want to call the Smith family because they just gave a, I think it was like a $25,000 gift, right? And so they, while we're sitting there, they call and they, they reach the spouse, the, the wife, Mrs. Smith, uh, we're just so grateful for the gift that you, you and, and George gave you know, is he there as well? Could we get on the phone with both of you? We just want to say thank you. And, and she says, well, no, it's Tuesday. It's his day to be in the warehouse. He's in your office. And they had no clue because the staff never looks at the volunteer roles. They're two separate departments doing separate things. And here, this guy is, is literally downstairs in their office. I mean, they could have made that engagement for him when he walked in the door that day could have been so much different, right? And it was just sort of, it was the clarifying moment to think, yeah, you know, th these things can't continue to sit in silos or we're not going to treat people. It, that's, like it's, it's, yeah. it's a great, great, great story. I love that story. And, and, and that should be a story that every, back to your education piece, every single person who's getting into fundraising or working at a nonprofit should hear that story because yeah. maybe then you'll start treating people a little bit differently. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's really, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how many large donations come from people who haven't donated before, because the way that it's taught now is you're only looking at people who've donated before. So somebody along the way had to be that first donation. So do we assume that everybody started at $25 and went to 50 and a hundred? And I think that's a false assumption. I think that might be the case with some people, but I don't think that's the norm. And, 
and what about all these people that like this husband? I mean, that's just incredible. They gave a they give a good good donate good size donation, and nobody's paying attention to them, and they're keeping them separate. I have had organizations I've been on that literally said the volunteers, like you said, they're separate databases, but also the two shall never meet. They actually physically are yeah. kept separate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we're we're just about out of time. I don't want to leave on a negative. So. Give, give me an example or, or your thought on, you know, if organizations start to do this differently, behave differently, start to absorb the kind of content that, that you've put in the book, like what's the hope for the future for, for these organizations? Uh, well, the hope is that those organizations are going to succeed and thrive uh, long-term and that they're also not going to be, I don't want to say they won't be phased, but they won't be put out of business by something like like a pandemic or like a, a fire or like some a donor you know, the thing that's even more common is that is that one of their top donors is no longer here and you know, passes away and then they say oh my gosh how could this have happened we don't have that money anymore you know and they were 90 years old and you're like I, I don't understand why wouldn't you want you planning for that so so my hope is that these organizations uh instead of falling off a cliff when all of a sudden one guy isn't there anymore or one donor changes their mind i've I, We've all had phone calls from people saying, oh my God, the foundation didn't renew us. We're, we're, you know, we're screwed. We're, there's no hope for us. Like you should never put yourself in that position. And so my hope is that, is that organizations are strong enough that they, they will never be in that position because they have such a diffuse amount, number of donors of all different types and all different people you can call on. And because they've really talked to people like people. And so they've increased the size of the pie, which makes them less vulnerable to anything different that happens in the world. And that, therefore, they can move forward and they can succeed. Love that. So before I let you go, three quick things from you. Where can people pre-order the book? Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstore, uh, starting September 8th. Uh, and uh, it will be available, but it can be pre-ordered right now. And it's available everywhere in the world on, uh, in an ebook form or um, Kindle right now. And um, so hopefully, please order. Awesome. How can people connect with you? Uh, they can email me from the uh, blog, from where the newsletters are posted, philanthropy451.com. Uh, they can email me directly from there, uh, or they can find me at uh, lisa at philanthropyrevolution.com. I'm pretty easy to find. So, awesome. Yeah. And then the last thing is, because this was such an enjoyable conversation, once, the, the, once you've been out on the circuit a little bit more and people have had a chance to absorb the book and give you some feedback, will you come back and talk to us again? Always. I will always talk to you. I think awesome. you're awesome. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh-huh. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.